Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Today we're in Exodus chapter 2, where we're actually going to see several accounts of Moses really stepping into this role of his as a, as a deliverer. Moses is somebody who's got deliverance in his blood. I mean, he, he's coursing through his veins. He has this sense for injustice, and he wants to make things right, and uh, sometimes he goes about it in the wrong way, uh, which kind of gives all of us hope, right? You have good intentions gone wrong, but there's some, we get some clues to what Moses' Achilles' heel is in, in this chapter that we're going to look at and we're going to see as the story unfolds. We're going to look at some positive lessons from Moses about doing the right thing, caring for the right things, but we're also going to kind of learn some anti-lessons from Moses. Remember, Moses is a Messiah-type figure, but he's not the Messiah, right? We talked about this last week. He's proto-Messiah. He's an imperfect one at that. So we're going to learn from uh, both Moses, his successes, and his mistakes, all coming up here in Exodus chapter 2. Now, we don't really know how Moses, at what point and how he found out his true identity. It's not really told in the text. We know he was adopted into this Egyptian royal family as a baby. Uh, He was raised as a prince in Egypt. He was somebody who had prestige and power. Uh, And at some point, he chose to give it up. He chose to identify with the oppressed uh, in the land, to say, these are my people. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us specifically that it was his choice Uh, to stop identifying as an Egyptian, to start identifying as a Hebrew, to give up that life, to give up that life of luxury and set it aside. But he chose to side with the Hebrews, the, the ones who were being mistreated. It tells us he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Wow. Look at that phrase. He could embrace disgrace because it was for the sake of who? Christ. Now that line fascinates me. That fascinates me. Because wait a minute. What do you mean Moses for the sake of Christ? I mean, Moses didn't know Jesus, right? He's about 1,500 years early. He'd never heard of Jesus. So that's a fascinating line. And we're going to talk about that in uh, Home Life uh, coming up next week. Just a reminder to all of our Home Life groups, we're not, our groups aren't meeting this week because we're putting all of our attention onto uh, VBS this week. We encourage everybody to be involved in that. But next week, we'll be back in Home Life. And next week, we'll touch on a few things that will be coming up next week in Chapter 3. Moses has his burning bush moment. It's going to be exciting. Uh, but we'll also come back and ask a few questions from today's message, such as that one. So today, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is the second book of the Bible right there towards the beginning. We'd love you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll be showing the the scriptures on the screen. Uh, But let's start out here in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to start on in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, One day after Moses had become an adult, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and he looked around to make sure nobody else was there, and he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And then when Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. Moses said to the one who had started the fight, why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? And he replied, who made you boss or judge over us? Are you planning on to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? 
And Moses said, oh, snap, when he realized <laughs> they obviously knew what he had done. Okay, so this is twice now that Moses has gone to help. Uh, first time, he ends up killing a man. And the second time, he realizes that killing somebody, he's been exposed for it. In verse 15, when Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses ran away from Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian. So here's the pattern that we, we see in this imperfect Messiah that is Moses. He, he often wants to do the right thing, but he goes about it in the wrong way. He has good intentions gone wrong. Someone's being oppressed. Well, Moses is like, who do I need to kill? Who needs to get beat up? Moses is in there. Um, now, this raises an issue. For, for some people, we might look at this because Moses gets in trouble for his anger. He gets in trouble for it, for some of these buried issues we're going to see that, that come leaking out every once in a while. Uh, taking matters into his own hands and killing somebody, beating people up in order to accomplish a good thing. It comes back to haunt him, and it raises an issue. We might say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I, I know the story of the Exodus. I know what's coming, right? There's going to be a whole lot of killing. I mean, God's going to do some killing. He's going to, before Israel goes free, God's going to do a whole lot of killing. How, how come Moses gets in trouble? Why does God get to kill? Why does he get to judge and punish? But when Moses does it, he gets in trouble. Well, you just kind of answered your own question, right? Because God is God and Moses is not, right? That's the point here. When we are called by God not to judge, it's not because God says, don't judge, because even I don't judge, you know, we don't, nobody wants, we don't want to judge. You shouldn't judge. Nobody should judge. It, it, this is a judgeless universe, and I am a judgeless God. Does he say that? No. no, no, no. That's not why he tells us not to judge. God actually says, no, you shouldn't judge because I am the judge. Right. So you can just chill in that area, right? right? You focus on loving people. And you can trust that I am a righteous, fair judge. So you can trust me in that. That's what God tells us. So Moses ends up, what he does so many times is kind of edging towards playing God. And he, playing God's role in things. And it's going to come back to haunt him. Uh, uh, there's another hard lesson that Moses learned in all of this. And that is he thought that, you know, when he made this grand gesture descending into the pits of, of pain with his people, he thought he would be well embraced by them. Um, that they would say, hey, thanks for beating up on the Egyptians. That's awesome. But uh, over in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, he's kind of reflecting back on this, and he says, he's talking about Moses, he said he expected his own kin to understand that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. Now, you can imagine uh, for 40 years, that's the length of time Moses spent as a prince of Egypt. For 40 years, Moses has represented those in power. He's represented the bad side, you know, the, the, the dark side, whatever. And he's represented the people who have benefited from the work of the slaves. And so he has been the emblem of the Israelites' pain and, and suffering. And they all, every one of those Israelites know people who have died, people who have been terribly abused and hurt at the hands of Egypt, of which Moses was a prince. He was one of the leaders. And so Moses says, you know what, I've decided to be on your side now. And that doesn't really undo all the pain instantly, does it? 
Uh, it doesn't do all the skepticism of, wait, 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 you know, now you, you want to say that you're one of us. That's, you don't realize what we've been through, Moses. You don't know what we've been going through. You don't know what it's like to be one of us. And, and they have a hard time accepting that. And so Moses actually has to go away and learn a humility. Um, and uh, there's some other reasons why it, it takes so long, I believe, too, while he goes away. But we'll get into that in a second. Let's keep, let's keep going. Our chapter 2 in verse 15, it says, One day Moses was sitting by a well. Now there was a Midianite priest who had seven daughters. The daughters came to draw water and fill the troughs so that their father's flock could drink. We just saw the scene. But some shepherds came along and rudely chased them away. And Moses got up, rescued the women, and gave their flock water to drink. Again, here's a third time we see Moses coming to someone's rescue. The word there is the same as deliverance, right? He's motivated. He's this natural-born deliverer. In verse 18, it says, When they went back home to their father, Ruel, we find out later in the chapter uh, that his name is also Jethro. He kind of has two names here. Remember, remember, there's many people named in this story. Uh, one, the one person who's not named in this story, who's not worth naming, Pharaoh. Right? The people in power, they don't get named. And that's making a statement. It's on purpose. So Ruel, later known as Jethro, asks, How were you able to come back home so quickly today? And they replied, An Egyptian man rescued us from a bunch of shepherds. And afterward, he even helped us draw water to let the flock drink. So notice they believe he's an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. He probably looks like an Egyptian, right? Uh, Moses would have known military tactics, leadership techniques. He's grown up in this, so he would have known how to fight. Um, he would have been well-educated. He's benefited from all these years as a, as a leader, being a leader in Egypt by this point. Uh, and it says, Ruel said to his daughters, so where is he? Why, why did you leave this man? Invite him to eat a meal with us. Moses agreed to come and live with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses as his wife. Uh, just real quickly, so uh, by the way, these, these folks are Midianites, we're told. Uh, Midianites are descendants of Abraham, uh, just as the Hebrews were, but through a different wife. After Sarah, who's kind of through, through whom the Hebrews are, are descended, after Sarah died, Abraham remarried a woman named Keturah, and through her line were the Midianites. And so they would have known of God, and they would probably honor God, but they're not Hebrews. But they still, they're the descendants of Abraham. They still worship the God of Abraham. So they're part of that promise that God gave Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. The Midianites are part of that promise. In verse 22, she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom because he said, I've been an immigrant living in a foreign land. And a long time passed, and the Egyptian king died. Again, he's not named. The Israelites were still groaning because of their hard work. They cried out, and their cry to be rescued from the hard work rose up to God, and God heard their cry of relief, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked at the Israelites, and God understood. That right there takes us to the end of chapter 2, and especially that last paragraph is kind of... Uh, Kind of, kind of a hinge paragraph in the whole story, the whole Exodus narrative. Now God gets involved. Uh, he's going to teach Moses how to do the, the right thing in the right way. Uh, so we're going to dig into what we just read a little bit more. First of all, uh, this passage that started in verse 11 
starts by saying one day when Moses had grown up. Uh, we learn from other passages of Scripture that at this time uh, that Moses was 40 years old at that point. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, it tells us that. Uh, 40 years old. 40 years of living as an Egyptian. In fact, you can, you can divide Moses' life into really three sets of 40. It's very interesting. 40 years living as an Egyptian. 40 years just waiting out in Midian, kind of living a whole other life there in Midian. He starts a family. He's a, he's a farmer, or he's a shepherd. And then 40 years wandering in the desert. 40, 40, 40. He's 40 years old. Now, 40 years as in Egypt... And he's learning all that he can there. He's learning probably some leadership skills. He's learning those skills. And then he runs to Midian. He's going to spend 40 years in Midian before God calls him and meets with him and sends him back to Egypt. And I think, uh, and I think there, the, one of the effects of that 40 years spent in Midian also, kind of a sad result of, you remember we were saying, that we realized so many of those Hebrews in Egypt did not receive Moses. They did not receive him as their rescuer. He kind of represented the, you know, the face of power and the conqueror and the oppression. He was the face of oppression. So really, 40 years goes by. Many of those people who would have remembered Moses being a leader, honestly, probably would have mostly passed away. So you'd have a whole new generation of slaves being brought up who didn't really remember Moses, um, except you know, just stories being told about him. Um, and then after he rescues Israel and Egypt, Moses is wandering the desert with them for another 40 years. And, and that takes us to the end of his life. 40 years living, 40 years waiting, 40 years wandering. You know, one of the things that this tells me and reminds me is that my age is no excuse. Age is no excuse for not doing what God has for you to do. Amen? Uh, Moses didn't get started until he was 40. And even then, he was just starting out. And, and he, you know, it's like he needs some time to bake. He goes to Midian, and God's like, okay, you're, you're prepared. Now you need to cook. And so he goes to Midian for a while, and he, he needs some time to learn more from God. That's where he actually first has his first encounter with God that we're going to see next week. And it's not until he's 80 that he's actually finally launching into what he's most known for. And so I just want to address this for a second. For those of you, whatever age it is, maybe it's, you know, you're, I'm too young or I'm too old, whatever it is, don't let that become your excuse. You're never too old. You're never too young. Your age is no excuse. We have to really bust this, this myth of retiring from work means retiring from life, right? Because that's not, that's not even biblical. Amen. You never get so old that your lot in life is just to kind of sit and wait for heaven. We don't see that. There's more, there's always more that God can do at every stage of your life. Even if it's just telling stories and imparting wisdom and just blessing people with your, with your character, right? And, and by the same token, you're never too young to get involved and partner with God to change the world. We're never too young, never too old. So I, I want us to, I wanted you to, to say this out loud with me. Everybody just say this out loud with me. We're going to say it across the room. If you're listening online, you'll feel silly, but just say it out loud. We're going to say it together. Ready? Here we go. My age is no excuse. Let's do it one more time like you mean it. My age is no excuse. Okay? My age is no excuse. For somebody, that may be just one of the things that's holding you back from partnering with Jesus and doing what he has for you to do. Uh, his, he has something for you to do to help change the world. Don't listen to it. My age is no excuse. It's beautiful. Now, 
So we notice Moses has this, this eye for injustice. This is one of the things that Moses does right. He, he identifies with the oppressed. He identifies with them. It's a beautiful thing. He wants to do the right thing, and he chooses to do this. Let's see, what are some other things that Moses does right? Moses takes the initiative to help. He actually does something about it. He doesn't just think, you know, nice thoughts about things and say, well, I really care. He takes the initiative. He takes the initiative. He doesn't just say, well, they know where I live. If they need help, then come knock on my door, you know, or something like that. He goes and he takes the initiative. And then what, what does Moses do? He gives up comfort and privilege. Now, this is really key. He gives up comfort and privilege. You know, especially for, for some, some of us in our culture, in our time, that we uh, are blessed to live in. There, let's be honest. There is a way of, of helping a little bit that we can pull off. And if we balance things just right in our checkbook and in our bank account, you know, we can feel really generous and uh, about helping others. But it really has zero impact on how we live. Right? There's a way we can help. I can, you know, I can give, give a guy a fiver, and next week, I'm not really going to hurt. I'm not going to notice it, right? It didn't really affect, it has zero impact. You might genuinely be helping somebody, but, but it doesn't really inconvenience you at all. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Just being honest. We, we, can, we, can, we can say, you know, I'm going to give a little more over here. I'm going to give a little bit here. I'm going to give to this person or this cause. And, you know, if I kind of work it out right, uh, everything will be good. I won't really notice. And, but I can still feel like a really generous person. I feel really good. And in the end, this giving and generosity, it just becomes something we do to sort of self, self-soothe. It's an ego-building device. Uh, it, it satisfies our ego. It's not the radical generosity that the Bible talks about, especially in the New Covenant. This idea of, of, of seeing a need and meeting it, meeting it radically. The New Testament, the people of God actually deny themselves many things so that they can give radically. That idea of saying, I'm actually going to go without something. I mean, I could. I could, I could give a little and still get to do this. I'm going to actually go, with, go without so that I can give radically. Or, or I'm going to delay something in my life to a later time so that I can give right now radically. And Moses becomes a great model for us here of what it means to actually give the way God calls us to give. To say, there are many things in my life that I would love to be able to do. And, and maybe I even have the finances. You know, I've worked hard. I've got the finances to do it. I have the ability to do it. I have the resources but I'm going to say no that I, so that I can give more to share with others, to invest in other people. That's New Testament, New Covenant generosity. And do you know why that's important? Because we should always be living at a place where we have to have faith in God. Now, I believe that with my whole heart. We should always be living where we have to have faith in God. Now, for some, for some of us, I understand. You, you know, you're, you're believing God to pay that, that bill. You're believing God for a paycheck this week and be able to pay all the bills. And if you give a dollar, you're, you know, it's like the, the example in the New Testament of the, the woman who gave the dollar and Jesus said, way to go. For, for you, that's giving all you got. But for some people, it might be God has blessed you to the extent where uh, you actually need to give a little more in order to live by faith, right? And that is always the goal. 
We always want to be living by faith. We never want to get to a place. If ever you're at a place where, you know what, I don't really need God because I'm doing good. I got a good job and I can give here and I can do this and God, we're good. Go work on somebody else. If you're there, beware, right? That, that's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous place. You want God involved in your life. There's no, nothing greater than getting to live by faith, especially when it's because of it, incredible generosity, right? Radical generosity. Hallelujah. Okay. Moses, what he is here, remember what we're doing here is we're not just looking at the story of Moses. Who's, what is the central figure of all of Scripture? Jesus. So as we look at Moses, what we're seeing are signs of Jesus. We're seeing Jesus. And he is such an awesome signpost pointing us to this pattern that Jesus leaves us. This example of Jesus, the idea of giving up power and privilege. He gave up power and privilege in order to serve. That is so Jesus, isn't it? So Jesus. We read this in Philippians. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another. Now, notice that. Let me just stop there for a second. In your relationships with one another. In your relationships with one another. So this isn't just those moments I'm walking along by myself, thinking big thoughts, thinking, having Christ-like thoughts right now. Look at me. I'm being so Christ-like. I'm thinking lofty religious thoughts. No. How we're, how, what is the authentic way we get to exercise our Christ-likeness in our relationships with one another, right? When we're interacting with each other, that's when we have the chance to be Christ-like. Who being in the very nature God did not, this is, we're talking about Jesus, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. And this is the descent of Moses. So we have a wonderful model here that Moses does for us. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And this is our Jesus who humbles himself even unto death. Jesus lays this foundation for us. What it means to deny ourselves in order to give ourselves to others. What it means to deny ourselves so that we can give ourselves to others. And, and thereby we get to live by faith. We get to live trusting God every day that he's gonna meet our needs. Okay, now we've looked at the text I want to draw uh, a couple of important lessons out of this. We've already mentioned a few things, uh, parts of this, but I want, to, I want us to take home a really crucial point from, from Moses and his character and some of his flaws that is going to be important for us. And that is this. Anger is not your friend. Amen. Anger is not your friend. Uh, there's a story over in the book of Numbers, chapter 20. We won't read it. I'll just kind of summarize it for you right now. But it's, it, it's years later. Moses has already led the children of Israel. They're out in the desert. And uh, uh, they're out there, and they're thirsty. They're in the middle of the, the wilderness. And Moses says, God, the children of Israel need some water. They're thirsty. And God says, well, here's what I want you to do. Moses, there's a big boulder over there. Go over to the boulder. I just want you to walk up and speak to the rock. Ask it to give you water, right? Tell the rock to pour out water, and that rock is going to begin to pour forth water. It's going to be an awesome sign of my power. This is what God tells Moses, okay? You know what's cool? Whenever God wants to do something, he loves to partner with us, doesn't he? He likes to partner with us. He does it in a partnership. Now, God out there in the wilderness, he could have made it rain, 
They could have said, God, we're, hung- we're thirsty. Oh, okay. He could have made it rain. He could have just made the rock pour water. That would have been a pretty cool miracle, right? Um, he doesn't need Moses to be involved, but God always, even when he's doing the miraculous stuff, he loves to do it with his people. He loves to do it in partnership. You know why? Because he is at heart, he is at heart relationship itself. God is relationship. It's his nature. He wants to do things together. He wants to do it together. Uh, uh, some time ago, a, few, a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, I brought home some flowers from Melissa. I don't think I did anything wrong. I don't remember if I was in trouble or not. But anyway, I brought home some flowers. Uh, probably just because I'm, I'm such a great guy. I'm sure maybe that, maybe that was it. We'll say that. Um, I brought home some flowers, and I was coming in the door, and a couple of my kids were in the, in the living room, and I said, hey, come here, come here. Uh, and I gave them uh, a couple of flowers to give, to let's all go in there and give mommy these flowers. And we, we go in there, and we give mommy the flowers, and she's like, oh, look at everybody brought me flowers. And the kids are like, yee, I brought you flower, mommy, yay. And everybody's kissing and hugging. It was a great moment. Everyone in that room knew that those kids didn't buy the flowers and go to the, buy the flowers, right? Everyone knew that. I knew that. They knew it. She knew it. But it didn't matter at all, did it? Right? Because we had this wonderful moment. Why? Because the purpose was about the joy of doing it together. We created this moment of joy and giving and doing it together. And, and mommy was excited and happy and the kids were excited and happy because it's about relationship. Relationship is what's important. Relationship. So God says, he says to Moses, I'm going to make water come out of this rock, Moses, and I want, I want to do it with you, right? We're going to do this together. Go over to the rock, talk to the rock. Water's got to come out. People are going to be refreshed and they're going to know how much I love them. Moses says, gotcha. He goes over, and the first thing he does is give this big speech to the Israelites. He gets up there, and he just starts reaming them out. How dare you people? You bunch of worthless. And he's just like letting them have it. He really starts like ego tripping. And he's, there's like obviously some years of latent anger coming out at this moment, right? It's seeping out now. It's rising to the surface. You are making me watch. Will you watch this? And he takes his, you know, magical staff and he goes over there to the rock and he smashes the rock. And then he smashes it again because nothing happened the first time. And he did it again, right? He smashes the rock. And guess what happened? Water came out. Now that's interesting. Water came out. God was still good. God was still gracious, provided a miracle. And the people were excited. The people were happy. God granted the water. But then God pulls Moses aside. And he says, you know, Moses, because you have done this, you didn't do what I said. Because you've done this, just so you know, when all of this wraps up, when we get to that promised land, you're not going in with us. I love you. I've used you. We've partnered this together. But you're going to lead Israel right to the edge. But you're not going in. It's not going to happen. There's something festering inside Moses and it's not good. Even right up to the end of his life that he has not dealt with, apparently. And it has been pushed way down deep, way down there where I like push breakfast tacos so I can fit more breakfast. You know, <laughs> he's pushed something, something angry down there. And God says, we don't want to take that forward. That's not what we want to take into the promised land. So you're not going with my people. And he's in a position of leadership, you know, so God's like, nah, it's not good. God takes anger very seriously. 
He takes it very seriously. The God who gets angry a whole bunch in the Bible takes our anger very seriously. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard it was said to those who lived long ago. He's talking about the law, the Old Testament law. Don't commit murder. In verse 22, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. Hardcore stuff right there. A few years later, James, the brother of of Jesus, says this. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This word anger is that, that Greek word orge, and it means wrath and vengeance. Wrath and vengeance. Uh, in, in fact, he, the way he says this human anger, that extra little descriptor there, human, it's the word, it's, uh, it's actually a word for male, for male or husband. A lot of the words in the Bible, you know, the, the, they refer to both men and women. This one is interesting. It's specifically a male type of anger, uh, and it, it's used for this sort of male anger and coincidentally childish anger. So male, childish, <laughs> anger. Just, I'm just the reporter. <laughs> but there's this, some, some kind of anger here, and we, we all know what this is like, um, where we think, hey, it's my role to get angry and crack some skulls, you know, because there's injustice going on, right? And God says, don't buy into that. Seeking vengeance is, isn't accomplishing what you think it's accomplishing. It's not doing what you think. Anger is not your friend. Anger is not your friend. Moses, his anger... It seemed to be there from the very beginning. It went underground for 40 years, and then smash, right? It comes out. But, and it really wasn't just hitting the rock. Uh, if you look at his whole, it was, that was kind of the final straw for God. And he says, there's something about this I can't allow forward into the promised land. So anger is not your friend. So what can we do about it? What can we do about that? What we can do is be honest. Be honest about what's going on in your insides, Be honest about that, or your anger will rule you more than you realize, and it will seep up when you least expect it. If you are not honest about what is going on in your insides, it will rule you more than you realize, and it'll leak out when it is not convenient, when you were not expecting it. I think there's a kind of pride some of us have, and we want to show our our best face to everyone. We want to market ourselves. Most of us in this room would like to market ourselves as a person who's, you know, pretty chill in the face of frustration. Um, and sometimes we even, we even market ourselves to ourselves. We, we lie to ourselves. We, you know, we're like, I don't even want to think about what's wrong inside me, uh, what my temptations are, what my dormant, buried, latent issues are down there. I don't want to think about it. I just want to tell myself that I'm fine. And uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he had this to say also. He said, for this reason, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. Healed, not just so that you can stop being angry or flipping out. You can be healed. Confess your sins to who? Who? other. But we, we can ignore this scripture, right? It's not like one of the important ones. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
Why do we value at this church? Why are we so obsessive about community? It's not because we love potlucks, you know. It's not just because, like, oh, we need, you know, I need, we need friends to eat with or something. It's not that. Why do we value intimate community and small groups and, and forging genuine relationships, relationships? Why do we do it so obsessively? Because God says that this is the safe place to be weak. This should be the safe place to be weak. In fact, God says, I want to work with weak people who have problems in their life because then my glory is on display. Amen. Paul says, when I am weak, he is strong. Amen. Right? That's nothing to be ashamed of. That is when God says, now I can use you. You're finally confessing this, right? So for me to be honest about that, not only with God, but to, to carry that honesty into a relationship with at least one other brother or sister in Christ, to, to say, this is my sin. This is me missing the mark. I, this is where I'm not the person I wish I was. And I know I'm not the, the person God wishes I was, but but I want to be really honest about that. That should be the common standard in life for the Christian. It should be the common. Uh, I, I'd like to say it's the common thing here, but I got a little skeptical guy on my shoulder that says it's probably not, that it's not the common. It should be the common. There's a kind of healing, James says here. There's a kind of healing that can only happen when we bring our sins our weaknesses, our failures, our flaws to the surface in honest confession. In genuine, that's genuine community. That's, the, that's when the healing happens. Now, I'm with you. I don't love the idea of going up to anybody and telling them my biggest flaws. The truth is he probably already knows, right? I got a couple of trusted people. I go with them, hey, man, here's the thing that I'm really weak at. And they're like, yeah, we know. Right, they already knew. It's just good for me to say it out loud. But, oh man, there's healing in it. There's healing in that. You know, you know the thing about your garbage is uh, to get rid of your garbage, at least in my house, you got to take it to the curb. You got to take it out there where the whole world can see it. Right? You got you to put it in the can. You got to take it out to the curb. In, in our neighborhood, the garbage men don't come up and, and take it out of the garage and go, we'll just take care of this for you. Right? That'd be great. But I got to set it all out there for the world to see. Um, you kick it to the curb. Get rid of your garbage. Amen? Amen. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. I want to I ask God today to help us to do God's things in God's way. Let's follow this example of Moses that says, I want to I move into the world's places of hurt. I want to move into the world's places of pain. I'm willing to give up what I want to, to make that happen. I'm willing to give up what I need to give up to make that happen. That's good. Let's follow Moses' example. But then we want to go a little bit further. Let's follow Jesus' example. And let's engage others, not in judgment, not as judge and executioner, but with God's light and his love. God says, I'm the judge. The Father's the judge. The Holy Spirit, it's his job to convict it's our job to love. He's the judge. The Holy Spirit convicts we love. He's what he told us to do. It's our role. And where we've missed the mark, and all of us have, 
we just say, God, I'm sorry. Help me get rid of this judgment. Help me get rid of that and grow in my desire to love purely as Christ did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for loving us and calling us to partner with you to change this world. You've called us to make a difference with you. I pray that this week we will begin to sense the, the purge happening in our hearts, Father. That we'll sense your spirit convicting us and shedding light on things that maybe shouldn't be there. So we don't carry those hidden pains around with us anymore. I pray, Lord, you would, you would give us courage to talk to others, to talk to our brother or our sister, to talk to others about what's going on inside us so we can experience that special healing, that you would help us follow Jesus in that way of pure love, pure grace. Help us to be the place here at Generations where no one walks alone so that we can be the people helping each other become more like Jesus. We thank you, Father. In the resurrected name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.